My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shada. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. To say that Ellen MacArthur is a phenomenal woman is an understatement. In 2005, age 28, she became the fastest person to sail solo non-stop around the world. It took her 71 days, 14 hours and 18 minutes. And during that epic journey, she never slept for more than three hours, as we're going to hear. But most of her naps lasted just a few minutes. At times, she battled enormous seas. And she compares the feeling to Indiana Jones running away from that boulder. Do you remember that? Terrifying. Anyway, Ellen loved it. You're going to hear exactly what that was like and how she stayed focused and what she learned from all this. The importance of goal setting really comes through in this interview. Ellen is obviously an incredibly determined person, but I reckon there's a takeaway for all of us from this conversation, and it's about having a plan. By knowing which direction you want to go in, that's how you make stuff happen. Ellen's insights are compelling, and I think you're going to want to listen to this episode a few times. By the way, if you want more adventure, go back and listen to episode 49 with polar explorer Tim Jarvis. But what's all this got to do with fashion? Well, this is the story of how Ellen, as a world record-breaking British sailor, became one of the foremost advocates for the circular economy and how she found herself in the corridors of power. Although, as you'll hear, she's not a fan of that word power, but we are talking about the United Nations, the UN Environment Programme, the European Commission, the World Economic Forum, and how Ellen created this platform to persuade people in charge that we need to reshape the global economy, to design out waste and pollution, to keep materials in use, and to regenerate natural systems. Now, Ellen's light bulb moment happened at sea. In parts of the Southern Ocean, she was 3,000 kilometres from land. So if she ran out of stuff, tea bags, whatever, there was no nipping out to the shop to buy some more, right? As she wrote in her logs, and I just love this, she wrote, what I have on this boat is all I have. And that's how it is with Earth's finite resources too, right? 
So last year, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation founded its Make Fashion Circular initiative and launched it at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit with Stella McCartney and a bunch of other big brands. The idea is all about tackling fashion's polluting and wasteful ways, but in a positive way to create a new system. Ellen is a force of nature. She's also really lovely. Truth be told, I'm a bit smitten by Ellen and everything that she and her team at the foundation does. Can we make fashion circular? You know what? I believe we can. And Aussies, if you want to read more about this, I have written a feature in the new October issue of Vogue Australia, which explores some of the ways in which fashion is moving towards a circular system. And in the next couple of weeks, dear listener, we're exploring circularity more. I've got a very exciting interview coming up with the legendary Cradle to Cradle author William McDonough, and also with Catherine Lay, who works with William as the CEO of Fashion for Good. What else? <laughs> Bit more. I'm surprised I can even function to record this thing for you, to be quite honest, because my book comes out today, kind of, it's Saturday, actually comes out on Monday, but I think it's on shelves right now. And as soon as I've uploaded this, I'm going to run out to the shop and take loads of selfies and also like buy all the books so it looks popular. <laughs> I might actually do that. International listeners, there is a big extract in today's Guardian Australia, which you can access. It's from the Youthquake chapter of my book, and I will share a link. And it asks the question, will young people take up the fight to save the planet? Of course they will. Talk to me about this and all of the stuff we raise in the podcast on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press. Ellen, I'm absolutely delighted that I'm getting to speak to you at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. Thank you. Well, thank you. Oh, it's all, the pleasure is all mine. Now, in preparation for this interview, I have been reading your autobiography, Full Circle. Mm -hmm. It's gobsmacking. It's such a page turner. I just couldn't put it down. But what it made me think mostly was, if you can do this, nothing must be difficult. And I'm talking about making fashion circular. <laughs> it's a good point. Um, I think that there are many, many differences. But in some ways, there are many similarities. You could say that sailing around the world is completely different from trying to change you know the global economic model and make fashion circular <laughs> it's very different but actually there are similarities real similarities you know when you sail around the world you know the first time was a race the second time was a record you have such a clear goal you know take the record you are trying to get that boat around the world as fast as humanly possible and not break it and get to the finish line but the goal is so clear you know exactly what you're trying to achieve and i think what's really fascinating with making fashion circular and the work on the circular economy is it gives a framework for change it gives a direction for everyone to innovate around to work towards and i think that's so important when people are trying to to shift an industry when we know that you know linearity doesn't work taking a material out the ground making something out of it and ultimately throwing it away that can't work in the long term with a growing population and finite resources it just can't so we need to change the system circular economy paints a picture of that system it's about being restorative and regenerative. It's about designing so you can recover materials. It's about using different business models to keep products in play. It's about changing the system. And when you paint a picture of what that system could look like, and that's what making fashion circular is all about, it's painting that picture and then it's getting the biggest players from the global industry on board to make that picture come to life. That's what we're doing. And the picture is vital. And that picture is the clear goal, like the round the world record was. Yeah. So you can see really clear parallels between those two journeys, even though they seem very, very mm. distant. Yeah, I think. And also the you know, experiences to knowing what success looks like. Once you know what success looks like, then 
you can work out how to get there. And that's exactly what we did with circular economy. You know, where are we trying to get to? A linear economy can't work, what can? Well, actually, maybe a circular one can. And then you start to try and understand it and you start to look at the economics and the material science. Okay, but I'm fascinated by the idea of the moment when you made that connection between your world on that boat and the global economy. And when you thought, okay, my resources on the boat are finite, they're not going to last forever. But then made that connection, joined those dots and, and translated that to the whole world. Can you tell us about that light bulb moment? Well, it was really odd because, you know, first and foremost, I never, ever thought I would leave sailing. Sailing was everything. From the age of four, all I wanted to do was sail around the world. It was my absolute dream. I was completely driven to do that. Everything I did was towards sailing. I read everything, learnt everything, talked to everyone. From four? From a kid, yeah. Saved all my school dinner money change for eight years so that I could buy my first boat to get closer to that goal. And, you know, it was pence in every single day but it was it was a complete goal and I think what really struck me with understanding the nature of finite resources on the boat was that it was no different from our global economy and it's not something that happens immediately you know I wrote on the boat in, in one of the logs not that I wrote many but there was one log saying you know what I have on this boat is all I have there is no more and I never thought oh the global economy is the same I was at sea I was in my you know racing mindset I was fully going for it to try and break the record um, but then you you these things drip feed and you get off the boat at the finish line and it's of course your life's complete madness you it gets turned upside down and oh those moments in the book when you describe what it's like to walk into the crowds of people waiting for you and yeah it's weird the whole thing it's not for me it's not real life it's an amazing moment and it's you're hugely honored to have those people there you know you're hugely grateful those people are there it's, it is amazing it, it did happen but it's not real life it's not a normal day that's not what my life is it's an extraordinary day in a very normal life that's but especially I deal after with you've it. been on your own all that time yeah, I, I guess it, it hit me first at the finish of the Vendée four years earlier. I was 24 years old. I'd never finished a big race like that before. And I didn't expect it. And I guess the second time, four years later, when I broke the record, I'd been through that experience once before. So I knew a little bit more what was going to happen. But at the finish of the Vendée Globe, I was completely not for six. I just wanted to go back to sea again. I felt so alien on, on land. It didn't feel like home anymore because, you know, home was on the boat. Home was where I felt you know most comfortable and and suddenly on land you're you know everyone knows you are and you crave your anonymity but you don't have it anymore and you don't realize you're going to lose it until you finish the race and when you finish the race you know the the goal has gone you know the goal to sail around the world has gone and yet you step ashore and your life's changed well you no, no longer have the goal and your life's upside down it was very very strange we're going to get onto the sailing a bit later, but I have to just pick you up on that and just say, listening to you talk about that moment when suddenly everyone's looking at you and you've got all this, I guess, adoration. It's funny because I think in our culture we chase that and we think that's really important. And lots and lots of, particularly young women that I speak mm. to through my work in fashion, they love and they covet the idea of being the centre of attention. But it actually sounds a bit horrible. I mean, <laughs> when it happens, yeah, not that much fun, right? For me, it was a real shock. I guess, you know, I'd never chased that. I'd never looked for that. I never wanted that. And, and as a kid... You know, my goal was to sail around the world and you know, I realised I could do that with sponsorship. So I went out and I tried to find a sponsor and it makes it sound easy. It was incredibly difficult to find sponsorship and to build a project and to, you know, to put all that together. But the goal had always been to sail around the world and that drove everything. It drove the sponsorship, it drove the interviews, you just get on with it. Purpose. It was completely purpose driven. And yet at the finish, that moment when the goal has gone because you've crossed the finish line and I finished second in the race. So, you know, I was only 24 hours after the leader. You know, that was very media worthy but for me I'd been chasing the goal of the finish line I hadn't been chasing the goal of the media so when the finish line's gone and you've finished second in the race and the race is over and then you're left kind of in this this odd space because what's driven you isn't there anymore it's done 
it's done and dusted and yet you you're chasing going home you, you're craving the anonymity you, you just want to be you again and go back to normality and normality isn't there and, and even the friends that you grew up with assume things have changed because you're in the media and the newspapers and you know they don't necessarily pick up the phone and you think well actually you, you know you have to contact them and say actually nothing's <laughs> changed the army have been around the world but I'm you know it takes time for them to realize that you haven't changed because they assume that when you're in the media you have but also you have changed because you've had that experience of doing this extraordinary thing alone and I mean I'm going to draw a ridiculous parallel that has nothing to do with it from my experience but you know when you go you go traveling remember going to India come back a year later Mm. and then your mum says oh did you realize that Pam up the road's got some new paint or something Mm. you know they're just their world stayed the same and you're Mm. like but I just went to India for a year Mm. there's a feeling of um, I guess I guess to some extent but the other part of what I felt was nobody unless they've done that race or broken that record, you know, depending on the trip, nobody can understand what it's like on that boat. You know, when I, when I broke the record on the trimaran, the only person who'd ever managed to do that was Francis Wyan and me. There were two of us. I took the record from him. He then took the record back from me. Taking a trimaran around the world nonstop is really hard. It, it is incredibly stressful. You live on adrenaline. It's not a, a nice position to put yourself in. There were amazing moments. Don't get me wrong. I loved it. I wouldn't change it for the world, but it's really hard. Nobody understands that. And, Part of, I guess, when I come back is you crave that that normality because you've been through something which is so difficult that you can never explain to anyone, you can never share to anyone. You try, you know, you try and say, yeah, but imagine what it was like. They can't. <laughs> they just can't because they haven't been there. And so for me, it was almost like you've been through something that's so alien. Actually, that normality is quite nice. You know, that, yeah. that you know, your mum's flapjack and a cup of tea is actually quite nice. <laughs> bizarre though it may sound no it makes sense there's a bit in the book where you describe your experience or you liken your experience to that of indiana jones running down that corridor Mm. with the big ball Mm. chasing him it was yeah the southern ocean was brutal and you know it's a brutal place you're racing around antarctica effectively um but there was christmas day a massive storm which came up behind me and and basically if i'd have broken something on the boat and had to stop i probably wouldn't be sitting here now it was 80 knots on the backside of that storm and a trimaran wouldn't survive that so i had to keep going i had to stay ahead and it's quite technical you know sailing but in order to stay north enough not to get encompassed by this thing and engulfed by it i had to sail a very aggressive route which meant i got bashed by the waves a lot you know it would have been easier just to slide downwind and just go with it but that would have meant it would have rolled over the top of me and that was really 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 tough did you ever have moments when you thought that you might not make it no no i loved how quick you answered that no I think the moment you think you won't make it, you won't. You always try and work out how you're going to get out to the other side. It doesn't mean you're not stressed. It doesn't mean you're not nervous. It doesn't mean it's not a difficult situation. Of course it is. But you, for me, it's always, you know, what's the plan of action? What's the plan of action? How can I minimise breaking things? Checking, 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 not sleeping. You're, you know, you're, the boat's getting beaten up. The lack of sleep really struck me as well. I mean, you are running on, as you say, adrenaline. I mean, it's just extraordinary amounts of mental strength. You don't really have an option. I... I Many people say, you know, how do you, you know, when you're out there, you're so short of sleep, you know, how do you wake up? You must just fall asleep and stay asleep. And I challenge anyone, you get on that boat at that speed, you try and sleep. It is absolutely horrendous. It's noisy, it's aggressive, you can't walk anywhere without holding on to things. You, the motion is like an out-of-control train, you're, you're being shaken around. And so you live in this kind of violently shaking world, but you're in tune with it. You know, you you have to stay in tune with it. You, you have no choice because it's kind of, it's everything. It's all around you. It's the thing that's keeping you alive. And, you know, at the same time, sleep deprivation is torture. It's brutal. It's, you know, I think all of us at some stage in our life have been short on sleep and you know what that does to but you. But not and like that over and over again for days and days and days. No, it's, I mean, it's, 
you don't get sleep a lot. Many people are surprised by the statistics that, you know, your average sleep would be maybe 20 minutes and eight minutes sleep wouldn't be seen as eight being strange. <laughs> well, and occasionally, occasionally an hour, very rarely two hours. And the longest I slept in the whole around the world was three hours. Really? As recorded by a sleep monitor, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, so you really do live in this, you know, this dynamic world. As a sailor, how important were clothes to you? I mean, as performance... Okay, as, as a sailor, clothes were really what, kept me alive because you know southern ocean i had no heating on the boat or no working heating Uh, the southern ocean is freezing you are sailing past icebergs and without you the boat is in a pretty bad way probably upside down floating about in the ocean without the boat you are in a pretty bad way and your clothes are what keep you running and functioning and they were absolutely vital to me you know breathable kit that kept me warm and dry i slept in it you know i would sleep on a beanbag outside in my clothes for the majority of the southern ocean it's absolutely essential i think it's so interesting because you know from a vogue perspective we're always thinking about adornment and beauty and mm. sometimes functionality but this mm. is a different being alive was quite beautiful to me <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> but it's true what was your relationship like with the ocean um i love it i mean i i love it as much now as i ever did the ocean's amazing the ocean actually without the weather is a very serene place you know, many people think of the ocean as being aggressive and dangerous. It's but the actually, weather. It's the weather that makes the ocean rough. It's not the ocean itself. The ocean with no wind is like glass. I mean, literally, very rarely do you see the Southern Ocean like glass. There's always some you know, movement in the swell, but actually it's the weather that changes the ocean. I love the ocean. It's so full of life. It's changing colour every day. It looks different every day, and you learn to read it and understand it, and, and you learn to understand the weather. And you know, the weather is a system that changes across the ocean and I love that that kind of deeper understanding of what makes you know what changes the wind speed many of us in modern culture are so insulated from weather nature everything natural you know Mm. we sit in an air-conditioned hotel room we get into a car we drive Mm. to the next one Mm. to be out there in the ocean to be out there in the elements I think is I mean I'm putting words in your mouth but Mm. I mean just from being a person who walks on the beach Mm. it makes you respect nature and it makes you want to protect her I'm going to use H-E-R because I like it why not personify nature mother earth but do you want to talk to me a little bit about that and then we're going to get on to the work that you do with the circular economy and with the Ellen Mm. MacArthur Foundation but let's talk about how your relationship with nature and particularly Mm. with the ocean and how that then extends to wanting to protect it well actually that's completely not the way I came to this and it's not what people would assume from my previous life you know I I love being on the ocean I absolutely you know love animals I love watching the albatross I mean you can't be at sea and not I don't think you know it's in the most amazing place so I have a can we just talk about the albatross how big Oh, the wingspan go up to, I think it's three, three and a half metres for the wandering albatross, and they'll just fly without moving their wings at all behind the boat, and they look at you, and they'll stay there for days. You sail past some of the Southern Ocean Islands, and they're green, and you see this amazing richness of wildlife. It's absolutely phenomenal, and it had a big impact on me. I loved it. But my interest in circular economy and, and moving into the space of global economics doesn't come from trying to protect the ocean or seeing plastics in the ocean or any of those really? things. Not at all. It comes from managing what I had on the boat, realising what I had on the boat was, was all I had. You know, in the Southern Ocean, you're two and a half thousand miles away from the nearest town. The nearest people are those manning the International Space Station above. You know, you are in the middle of nowhere. You understand what finite is. You can't nip to and the co-op. You can't nip to the shop. No, there isn't a corner shop. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing anywhere near you. It's 10 days to get you to a hospital, even if everything goes wrong. You know, you can't, it's five days for a ship to get you and a plane can't land. So 
you know, it really gives you that understanding of, you know, isolation and that, and therefore that realisation of what finite is. It's very real and it's very raw. But I, I've never translated that, or I'd never translated that to anything outside of the boat. And then at the, at the finishes around the world, I began to see things differently. I began to realise, you know, that our global economy is no different from the boat. It's reliant on resources that we have once in the history of humanity. It could be plastics, it could be metals, it could be materials that we have that we're using up and that can't work in the long run and that's a question for us that's us as you know humans in this world our economy our livelihoods our income our food is built on a system which is buying time and that's not okay for us that's not going to lift billions of people out of poverty that's a big deal it's a big question and that was what brought me to this it wasn't you know the ocean and seeing what i saw at sea beautiful though it was it was that real understanding that linear can't work in a finite world you know we can't have an economy that takes a material out the ground makes something out of it and throws it away it can't work it's funny that i automatically come to i suppose i'm sentimentalizing it by saying you see plastic in the ocean you want to protect the ocean Mm. or you recognize that we're depleting earth's resources and that feels like something that you need to i'm trying to connect the dots with nature Mm. but you're not looking at that way are you ever I mean, having been immersed in the ocean and then doing the work that you do on plastics. I mean, I'm passionate about the ocean mm. and I would be, you know, completely wrong to say that I'm not because I've you know, spent months and months, years, actually, literally years at sea in my life. When you add up all the days and the nights and the months. and <laughs> But actually, you know, with the this definition of finite and the world's resources and our global economy, that's a human thing. That's an us thing. That's us and our well-being and our ability to to lift countries out of poverty or lift themselves out of poverty even better you know we need we are reliant on these resources Mm. so for me it was that very much that question and when we began to communicate the circular economy and the work of the foundation you know this is a global problem which needs a global solution this is not a part of a business that needs to change it's the very nature of the entire economy that needs to change so this is a conversation for everyone this isn't a conversation in a box about nature and the environment this is our global economy that can't function in the long term and it was vitally important to communicate it as that as it still is because you know that's the bottom line our economy can't run in the long term that's everyone that's not an environmental issue it's not a carbon issue it's not a degradation of natural resources issue it's an all it's an all issue it's an our economy issue it's our well-being issue it's everything it's everything that's connected and and actually the only way we can fix it is from you know ceos or leaders of countries to change the system to change the way we design products to change the way we recover them to change the way the business models work to design everything for circularity so if it's biological it's designed so that it can compost and feed back into the system and if it's technical like a plastic it's designed to be recyclable and fit back in the system that is not the case today today it's linear and we're buying ourselves time and that's not okay it's not good enough and it's not a it's not a goal most important it's not a goal before you stopped sailing professionally mm-hmm. you recognized that you were at a moment in time where you had power because people were looking at you and then you translated that into saying I'm going to grab this moment and mm. set up this foundation explain a little more about how that happened because it kind of happened immediately can you no, talk was, us through the process it was quite hard actually you know you say I had power I never saw it as power it was opportunity I had the ability to open doors because you know I was in the media and people knew I, who I was I had no idea what I was going to do with that I had no idea about the circular but that economy is power. maybe some people I never but saw opportunity it. is a good word Power doesn't sit comfortably with me. I'm not that kind of person. But there was definitely an opportunity to do something. And I wanted to use that opportunity once I started to understand that there were challenges that faced all of us. You know, humanity is on a by-yourself time course, which is not really that 
exciting for the next generation growing up, nor is it for the future of business. There was a better way of doing things. So I wanted to understand what that goal could look like. And I guess in the early days, that ability to open doors helped me to sit on, you know, global councils, CR panels. Um, I sat on boards. I spoke to, you know, economists and experts and scientists who understand material science and different ways of designing. I was able to have many conversations and actually completely naively. And initially I had no idea about global economics. I really didn't understand anything in this space, but I wanted to get to the bottom of it. I wanted to know what that goal was. And so I probably asked a lot of very silly questions and, and kind of formed my own picture of what what I needed to do, you know, what pieces of the puzzle I needed to put in place to understand the broader system. And then eventually that led to understanding of many different disciplines like industrial symbiosis, cradle-to-cradle design, biomimicry, performance economy, sharing economy, blue economy. You start to understand all these different ideas and think, well, actually, if we could shift linear to circular by putting many of these principles in place, then actually we could have an economy that could run in the long term. We don't have all the answers today, but there's a basic difference between a straight line and a circle. And a circle is regenerative and a straight line isn't. And an efficient straight line is never going to be regenerative because it is by very nature a straight line. And that for me was a big moment. That for me was that understanding that there's a better way of doing things. There's a different way of doing things, which is restorative and regenerative. And actually, if you're a young person going through education, when you get circular, why would you ever create waste? Why would you ever design anything to be used once? Why would you ever ever design a piece of plastic that you can do absolutely nothing with because it's not recyclable? It will have to be incinerated or landfilled, therefore lost from the economy. You know, that's costing billions and billions, not only through from the downsides of blocking sewerage systems and ending them in the ocean and polluting fish and all the other creatures that live there, but also there's a hard economic negative, but also there's an economic positive if you get it right. Between 80 and 120 billion US dollars worth of plastics is lost from the economy every year because we make it to do nothing with after its single use, which is crazy. It doesn't make sense. So I think circularity is common sense. It's not easy to put everything in practice, but the basic design principles that sit behind it are, are not complex. I love how you always often bring it back to value because you're talking to business leaders, you're talking to change makers who can actually put this into practice. Mm. And we're here at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit where the impetus is, can this be good business? How do we make good business, better business, and how Mm. do we thrive? Mm. It has to be about money too. And it's interesting, I'm not sure how often in the environmental space when I have conversations around, for example, waste, Mm. we frame that around value. When we started the foundation, one of the first things that we did with our corporate partners who funded us initially. You know, we're a charity, but we were funded by corporates. Who are they? When we first launched the foundation, our partners were initially all corporate. So our funding came from businesses who knew Linear didn't work and wanted to understand more. So we had Renault, we had Beatty and Cisco, we had Kingfisher and National Grid. And we went straight to McKinsey with the idea of a circular economy. And we said, you know, does the circular economy have the potential to decouple growth from resource constraints? You know, is it profitable for business? And is it good for the wider economy? Because we knew if it worked economically, it would happen. Mm. If it makes more money to be circular than linear, it will happen. It just will happen because there's a better way of doing things. And so all our initial analysis was pushing on the numbers, trying to understand, you know, European medium complexity goods, which included cotton as one of the examples, or looking at FMCG the following year, looking at global supply chains. What is chains, FMCG? Faster moving consumer goods. Ah, there you so, go. Yeah, food and packaging <laughs> and things. Not good at the stuff. No, well, Thank it's you. World Economic Forum. That's where we launched it. But it was, it was really interesting because we always looked at the numbers. If you look at the numbers and the numbers stack up, it's going to happen. You know, business will make it happen because it makes more money. This isn't a nice thing to do because it's important. It is important, but that doesn't have to be the driver. The driver can be pure economics, and we felt that was incredibly powerful because it opens all the doors. Now, how many years in? So now we're eight years into the life of the foundation. We'll be eight years this summer. 
And we worked for two years, well, two to three years before that, trying to understand you know, what the goal was, what circular economy was before we launched. So it's been over 10 years for me now, and it's been a phenomenal journey. Are we getting there? Are we getting there? Some days you feel yes. You know, we've had tremendous success with the European Commission and their work around circular economy, and we've got a great relationship with them as we're understanding more about what circular economy can look like for Europe. Uh, the plastics work has been hugely popular. We've Gosh, now, it's had traction. Yeah, we've got twelve between 12 and 13% of the total global market in plastic packaging signed up to change the principles behind which they design their plastic packaging. So recyclable, compostable, really? or reusable by 2025. And we've got one national implementation scheme launched in the UK uh, with the UK government and RAP, who are a yep. packaging charity. And we're about to do another one over the other side of the Atlantic. So that Yay. really is gaining traction. And the big players are in the room. You know, they're signing up to say, this is how we will make our packaging oh, in the future. I, may, I feel happy when I hear it. So um, yes, that's progress. But has it happened yet? No. But it's coming. You know, how circular are we? We're not really. We're very, very linear at the moment. So it's easy to think, wow, there's great success. But actually, the reality is there's a lot of work to be done. Mm. But what is really reassuring is there's a positive dialogue between people business, at the table well people at the table but also between business and legislation because often it's being lobbied against you know we don't want this this is going to change our industry whereas with circular economy it's a very different conversation in many cases we have businesses saying we need this we need a level playing field we need this circularity is about growth and competitiveness this is something that's important to us and there's a very positive dialogue which has really helped you know with plastics but mm. also with a, with a wider circular economy story let's talk about fashion when we talk about this idea of making fashion circular, mm -hmm. it is a fairly new concept for the fashion industry. What does it really mean? And just in laywoman's terms, could you explain what that means for fashion? Well, when you make fashion circular, you apply the principles of a circular economy to fashion. So you build a fashion system which is able to be regenerative. So you do that by doing three things. You look at the materials that sit within clothes so they're renewable and that could be a plastic that's recyclable or it could be a biological material and safe, obviously. We don't want toxins on our bodies. Mm -hmm. The second principle is to look at different business models to keep those products in play longer. That could be rental models, lease models. It could be better quality clothing, models of clothing which are repairable. You know, Patagonia repairs 50,000 items a year. Um, so to keep that clothing in play for longer and then ultimately to have technology and scale, solutions at scale to turn old clothing into new. If we can do those three things, we can build a circular fashion system, but it needs the industry to work together. You know, no company can do this on their own. You've had um, great support from Stella McCartney, and we look to her in fashion as a great innovator. How did that relationship come about? Well, Stella's looking perpetually at new ideas, different materials. You know, she, as you quite rightly said, has been a figurehead in this space. And we were new to fashion. We were new to the textiles industry. You know, we come at this from a circular economy angle up. You know, previous project had been on plastic packaging, which is very different, you know, similar from a materials perspective in some ways, but very different. Although, a, Australian Fashion Week, someone showed a coat made from bubble wrap. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I saw it on Instagram. Well, I suppose 60% of fashion is plastic. You know, the, the material Whoa, that, sits, is that the figure? sits behind it is plastic. Yeah, so, so actually plastic is relevant, but this was a new industry for us. And we started to look into the numbers. We started to look into the volumes of textiles and clothing and where they go we found that only one percent of clothing gets recycled into clothing Unbelievable. plastic packaging is two percent so it's incredibly low 53 million tons a year and 87 percent of that gets landfilled or incinerated 
In order to change the system, we need collaboration. We need these companies to work together to look at different materials, to create um, volume in these materials so that they can be recovered and fed back into the system. It, it can't be fragmented. It has to be you know, a conscious shift towards systemic change. You know, with that picture painted, you know, with those processes in place, the, the choices, the business model change, the design and the mm. reprocessing, that has to happen together. This whole idea of shifting the conversation away from deprivation you know mm. bill mcdonough says let's not right. you know we don't want to be drab and depressed and denied we mm. want the stuff but we mm. want the stuff to be produced in a responsible sustainable way i don't think mm. he likes the word sustainable but mm. well it's I just guess- it's just we want the production process to be one that can happen today and in a hundred years time and today it isn't you know a hundred years ago it was fine because we had a small world population we were using things up at a very slow rate but in the last 15 years we doubled our clothing production Long term, that doesn't work. And I think it's, it's about, you know, do we want our clothes produced in a sustainable way, to use that word? We just want clothes. <laughs> you know, we want fashion. We want to be dynamic and creative. We want, you know, we, we need clothes. We all need clothes. You know, more in cold countries, fewer in hot countries. But we need clothes. It's a very important part of, of our lives. But, you know, that... Not in the way we're doing we can, it now. Yeah, that can be provided for us in a mindful way, which is absolutely what we're showing with Making Fashion Circular. But is one central tenet of this the fact that we need to produce less or not i think producing less could be part of this but it's not to say we can't have products that flow faster there are certain things you know do you want to keep your pants for 20 years probably not and they don't there want are, to rent them either. and you don't want to rent them either <laughs> exactly so for those things that do flow more quickly through the system and it's the same you know in, when you look at circular economy with technology you know you need technology to refresh there are things that flow more quickly there are some things like art or a beautiful table you might want to keep in your family for generations so it, it's not one size fits all but for those things that flow more quickly design them to fit a system design them so that they're recoverable design them so that they can be you know turned into the next generation of clothing and mm. not landfilled or incinerated mm-hmm. if you design waste out of the system then by definition when you design those things that flow more quickly they will turn into something that has value maybe that's fertilizer are you hopeful that we can do it and how about quickly enough i have no question we can do it absolutely no question you know we can pretty much do everything that we set our minds to and well you you can well (laughs) i always think back to my great grandfather's life he was born in 1894 which seems like a long time ago and it was a long time ago but he was alive till i was 11 so he's very real to me he was a good friend we spent a lot of time chatting he was a coal miner he worked down the mines for 50 years i remember his stories like they were yesterday in his lifetime pretty much we built the first car when he was born there were 25 cars in the world now look that's you know i knew him till i was 11 So this is not long ago. You know, when he was um, 14 years old, we flew for the first time in history. Now three times the world population back then fly every single year. And now fashion's emissions are the same as world aviation plus maritime. I learned that from your report. Oh, my God. So, you know, can things change quickly? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we can do anything we put our minds to because history has shown that. What we need is a direction. What we need is a direction to innovate towards. And that's what making fashion circular is about. It's a collective decision right across the fashion industry saying, if we do these three things, if we innovate together, if we work together, we create scale, then we can build a circular fashion system which can run just as well in 100 years as it can today. Yes, let's do it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sounds easy. Yeah, come on then. Let's but it. it has to be done. You know, this is for the future of humanity. This is about building an economy that can run. This is about people's livelihoods and incomes and, and creativity and innovation. And, you know, what young person wants to buy themselves more time? They want to create new materials. They want to be part of a, you know, a system. They want to design for, for a system that can be restorative and regenerative. They want to rebuild natural capital, not mm. eke it out a little bit longer. You know, this is about opportunity. That eke it out a little bit longer. It's a funny thing that we've got ourselves into, isn't it? That, mm. And I know that Bill Madonna <clears throat> talks about this too, which is, um, you know, this idea that we can be less bad. Mm. We yeah. should just be aiming to be good, right? It really hit me when we were working on circular economy in the very early days. It must be seven years ago. We were working in education because that's one of the areas the foundation works in. And we were trialling some materials with a school in the north of England. And we worked with one particular school, Bishop's Holgate School in York, it was. And we worked with Lovely Steve York. Steve Parkinson, yep, the north of England. He was one of the craft design technology teachers and he was working with one of his students. And this student loved design and technology passionately. And he came up to his teacher, Steve, when he was doing his A-levels. And he said, you know, so when I did my GCSEs, he said, you know, I love design and technology, but I couldn't think of anything to design. Everything was designed. He said, but now, now I've learned about circular economy. Everything I see, I want to redesign. And you just, that for me sums it up completely. This is about opportunity. This is about redesigning things to be better. And this is about innovation. It's about creativity. It's about positivity because we can do things better. Isn't that a great thing to run towards that unlocks more value? 560 billion US dollars worth of economic opportunity is lost from the fashion industry because we build it in a linear way and 87% gets landfilled or incinerated. That's crazy. It's madness. I say it all the time, to buy clothes, to throw them away is madness. Well, there is no away. We do not have an away. Why would you ever design anything that is going to become waste? Doesn't make sense. No. Ellen MacArthur, thank you so much for all the work that you do and also for taking the time to talk to us. And I know listeners are going to be over the moon to hear this. It's thank great you. stuff. I thank love it. Thank you very much. It's getting hard My parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you